Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Metamorphosis, or Golden Ass. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shiromi Arserio. The Metamorphosis, or Golden Ass, by Apelius. Translated by Thomas Taylor. Chapter 1 Part 2. Then she who carried the sword said, This, O sister Panthea, is my dearly beloved Endymion, my Ganymede, who, both by day and by night, has made sport of my youth. This is he who, despising my love, not only defames me by reproachful language, but also betakes himself to flight. But I, indeed, am deserted by the craft of this Ulysses, and, like another Calypso, am left to lament an eternal widowhood extending likewise her right hand, and showing me to her panthea. But this, said she, is his good counsellor Aristomenes, who was the author of this his flight, and now, near to death, lies prostrate on the ground with the bed upon him, and who likewise sees all these transactions, and thinks that he shall not be punished for the disgraceful things which he has said of me. I will take care, however, that he shall repent, though late, or rather presently, or even now of his former defamation and his present curiosity. On hearing this, I, miserable man, felt all my members in a cold sweat, and my bowels began to shake with fear, so that the bed, also being agitated and restless, leaped up and down on my back through my palpitation. But, O oh sister, said the good Panthea, shall we first delicerate this man after the manner of the Bacchae? Or binding his limbs, shall we amputate his genital parts? To this Moreau replied, for I then perceived that her name accorded in reality with the narrations of Socrates. Rather let him live, in order that he may cover with a little earth the body of this miserable creature, Socrates. And immediately after, having moved the head of Socrates to the other side, she plunged the whole of the sword into his body up to the hilt, through the left part of the neck, and diligently received the emission of the blood in a small vessel placed under it, so that no drop of it might ever be perceived. These things I beheld with my own eyes. The good Moreau, however, inserting her right hand through the wound, as far as to the most inward parts of the body, and exploring them, lest, as I think, she should at all deviate from the rites pertaining to a victim, drew out the heart of my unhappy companion, while he, in the interim, his windpipe being cut by the force of the sword, emitted through the wound a voice, or rather a stridulous, uncertain sound and, with the bubbles of blood, poured forth his soul. But Panthea stopped the whole orifice of the wound with a sponge, and said, Beware, O sponge, born in the sea, that you do not pass through a river. Having thus said, and lifted my bed from the ground, they entirely drenched me with the moisture of the most filthy urine. Afterwards, they had scarcely passed over the threshold, when the doors rose again, entire to their pristine state. The hinges settled in their receptacles. The bars returned to the side of the doors, and the bolts to their cavities in the posts. But I, in the state in which I still was, prostrate on the ground, dismayed, naked, cold, and drenched in urine, like an infant that has recently emerged from the womb of its mother, and besides this, half dead, or even surviving myself, and born again after my death, or rather a candidate for the cross, to which I was now destined, said, What will become of me when, in the morning, this my companion shall be found with his throat cut? To whom shall I appear to say what is probable, though I should speak the truth? For they will say, you ought at least to have called for assistance, if you, though so large a man, could not resist a woman. 
What, was the throat of a man cut before your eyes, and yet you were silent? Why were you not slain at the same time? Why did outrageous cruelty spare you, who witnessed the murder, and suffer you to remain an indicator of the deed? Because, therefore, you have escaped death, now return to it. These things I frequently revolved with myself, and the night verged towards day. It appeared, therefore, to me to be best to leave the inn privately before daylight, and to pursue my way, though with trembling steps. I take my bundle, put the key in the door, and draw back the bolts. But those good and faithful doors, which had been spontaneously opened during the night, were then scarcely and with great labour unfolded by the frequent insertion of the key. And I then said, Soho, porter, where are you? Open the door of the inn as I wish to depart before the break of day. But the porter, who was lying on the ground behind the gate of the inn, and was even then half asleep, said, What are you who would begin your journey at this hour of the night, ignorant that the roads are infested by robbers? For though you may wish to die through the consciousness of some crime which you have committed, yet we have not the head of a gourd that we shall die for you. Then said I, It is nearly day, and besides, what can robbers take away from a traveller who is extremely poor? Are you ignorant, O stupid man, that he who is naked cannot be plundered even by ten athletes? To which the porter, weary and half asleep, and turning himself on the other side, replied, How do I know whether you have not killed your companion with whom you came hither yesterday in the evening, and that now you commit your safety to flight? For I remember at that time, i.e. at midnight, I saw Tartarus, which is at the extremity of the universe, and in it the dog Cerberus ready to devour me. And I recollected indeed that the good Moreau did not spare my throat through pity, but cruelly reserved me for the cross. Returning therefore to my bedchamber, I deliberated with myself about a speedy kind of death. But since fortune had supplied me with no other deadly weapon than my bed alone, I said now, O bed, most dear to my soul, who hast endured with me so many sorrows this night, and who art conscious and a witness of what has been transacted in the course of it, and whom alone, when I am accused, I can adduce in proof of my innocence, supply me, who am hastening to the realms beneath, with a salutary instrument of death. Having said this, I began to undo the rope with which the bed was corded, and having tied one end of it to a small beam which was under the window, and with the other made a sliding knot, I stood upon the bed, elevated to destruction, and put my head into the halter. But while with one foot I kicked away the prop by which I was supported, so that the rope being strained about my throat might by the pressure of the weight stop my breath, the rope which was both rotten and old suddenly broke, and I, violently descending from on high, fell upon Socrates, for he lay near me, and, together with him, I was rolled on the ground. And lo, at that very instant the porter rushed into the bedchamber, crying with a loud voice, Where are you that made such haste at midnight, and now lie snoring rolled in the bedclothes? At these words Socrates rose first, whether awakened by my falling, or by the discordant vociferation of the porter I know not, and said, It is not without reason that all these hostlers are execrated, for this impertinently curious fellow, by his unseasonable intrusion, with an intention I have no doubt of stealing something, has roused me, though very weary, from a profound sleep by his outrageous noise. On hearing him say this, I rose up, cheerful and glad, and replete with unhoped-for joy. I said, Behold, O most faithful porter, my companion, my father, and my brother, whom you, being intoxicated, falsely accused me of having slain. And immediately after I embraced Socrates and kissed him for joy. 
But he, being filled with the scent of the most filthy liquor with which those witches had infected me, vehemently spurned me from him. Take yourself from hence, said he, for you stink like the bottom of a privy. And he began mildly to inquire the cause of this fetid smell. But I, miserable man, having immediately devised an absurd tale, turned his attention to something else, and taking him by the right hand said, Let us go and enjoy the pleasure of a morning walk. So I took my bundle, and having paid the innkeeper for our night's lodging, we departed. We had not proceeded far before everything was refulgent through the rising of the sun, and I curiously and diligently observed the neck of my companion, in that part in which I had seen the sword plunged, and said to myself, O oh, foolish man, you certainly have had a most absurd dream, because you have been overwhelmed with intoxication through wine. Behold, Socrates is entire, sound, and safe. Where is the wound? Where the sponge? And in the last place, where is the scar so deep and so recent? Addressing myself to him, I said, Skilful physicians are justly of opinion that horrible and troublesome dreams are the consequence of the body being distended with food and wine. For because I drank too much wine yesterday evening, the rough night exhibited to me dire and truculent images, so that I still fancy myself to be sprinkled and defiled with human gore. To which he, laughing, replied, You are not sprinkled with gore but with urine. Nevertheless, my throat appeared to me also in my sleep to be cut, for I felt a pain in my neck, and thought that my heart was plucked out, and even now my spirit fails me. My knees tremble. I stagger, and wish for some food to refresh my spirits. Behold, said I, a breakfast is ready prepared for you. And having said this, I took the scrip from my shoulders, and placed it on the ground, and hastily extended to him some cheese with bread. I also said, We will sit down near that plane tree which having done, I also took some bread and cheese from the same scrip. And beholding him somewhat more intently, as he was greedily eating, I saw him become of a pale yellow colour. At length, also, his natural colour was so disturbed, that on imaging to myself, through fear, those nocturnal furies, the piece of bread which I had first taken, though it was very small, stuck in the middle of my throat, so that it could neither pass downward nor return upward for the frequency of our going together caused an accumulation of my fear. For who would believe that one of two companions could be slain, without the fault of the other? He, however, after he had devoured a sufficient quantity of food, began to be impatiently thirsty, for he had greedily eaten a great part of a most excellent cheese, and not far from the roots of the plane tree, a gentle river sluggishly flowed, after the manner of a stagnant marsh, and which in its colour emulated silver or glass. Lo, said I, satiate yourself with the milk-white liquor of this fountain. He rose, and, being covered with his short cloak, inclined himself on his knees towards the more equable part of the bank, attempting, with great avidity, to drink the water. But he had scarcely touched the topmost dew of it with the surface of his lips, when the wound of his throat opened into a deep cavity, and the sponge suddenly rolled out of it, accompanied by a small quantity of blood. Lastly, his body, being without life, had nearly fallen into the river. But I, laying hold of one of his feet, drew it with great difficulty and labour to the upper part of the bank. And after I had lamented my unfortunate companion as much as the time would permit, I buried him in the sandy soil, which is eternally in the vicinity of the river. I also, trembling and exceedingly fearing for myself, fled through various and inaccessible deserts. And as if guilty of homicide, having left my country and my home, and embraced a voluntary exile, I now dwell in Atolia, having there again entered into the connubial state. Thus far Aristomenes, that companion, however, of his, 
who from the first rejected his narration with an obstinate incredulity, said, There is nothing more fabulous than this tale, and nothing more absurd than this lie. And directing his discourse to me, But you, said he, who are a man of a cultivated mind, as the form of your body and your dress indicate, do you believe in this fable? To this, I replied, I do not think there is anything which may not be affected. But all things happen to mortals according to the decrees of fate. For many things usually happen to me and to you, and to all men, of an admirable nature, and almost incredible, which nevertheless, if narrated to an ignorant person, would lose their credibility. But I, by Hercules, believe in what Aristomenes has said, and give him the greatest thanks for having excited our attention by the pleasantness of a delightful tale, and enabled me to accomplish a rough and long journey without weariness and labour, with which kindness I think that my horse also is much gratified, since I have been carried without fatigue even to the gate of the city, not on his back, but by my ears, and thus terminated our conversation and our journey, for both my companions turned to the next villages on the left hand. But I entered into the first inn which I perceived and acquired of an old woman who kept a tavern, whether this was the city Hypata, and she gave me to understand by a nod that it was. Do you know, I said, a certain person of the name of Milo, who is one of the principal men of the city? At this question she laughed and said, Milo is deservedly considered to be one of the first men who dwells out of the whole city, and out of the Pomorium. Jesting apart, I said, Tell me, I beseech you, most excellent mother, what kind of man he is, and where he lives. Do you see, said she, those last windows which outwardly look to the city, and that gate on the other side which fronts the next street? There Milo dwells, who abounds in money and is very opulent, but is extremely avaricious and shamefully sordid. In short, he frequently employs himself in usury on a very large scale, receiving for this purpose pledges of gold and silver, shut up in a little house, and always dwelling on his tarnished money, with a wife who partakes of his misery. Nor does he keep any one besides in his house except one female servant, and is always, when he walks abroad, habited like a mendicant. To this I laughing replied, My Demaeus has kindly and providently consulted for me, who has recommended me in travelling to a foreign country to such a man with whom, while I stay, I shall have no occasion to fear clouds of smoke, or the smell of the kitchen. Having thus said, I proceeded a little farther, came to the gate, and knocked at the doors, which were strongly barred, at the same time calling to someone to open them. At length a certain girl came forth and said, Ho, you who knock at our doors so violently, what is the kind of pledge on which you want to borrow money? Are you alone ignorant that we admit of no pawn, except it is either gold or silver? Predict better things, I said, and rather inform me whether I shall find your master at home. He is indeed, she replied, but what is the cause of this question? I have brought a letter, I said, written to him by the Corinthian Demaeus. Wait for me, she said, in this very place, while I deliver your message to him. And immediately on saying this, having again fastened the doors, she went into the house. Returning from thence shortly after, and having opened the doors, she said, My master requests you to come in. I accordingly entered and found him sitting on a very little bed, and just then beginning his supper. His wife sat at his feet, and before an empty table, which, showing to me, she said, Behold your entertainment. It is well, I said. And immediately I delivered to Milo the epistle of Demaeus, which having hastily read, he said, I love my friend Demaeus, who has procured for me such an illustrious guest. And having said this, he ordered his wife to depart, and desired me to sit in her place. 
taking hold of my garment likewise and drawing me, who was reluctant through modesty. Sit there, said he, for through fear of robbers we dare not procure for ourselves any seats, nor even as much furniture as is sufficient for domestic purposes. I did what he ordered me to do. He then said, I may rightly conjecture from the excellent form of your body, and from this virgin modesty, that you are sprung from an illustrious race. But my friend Demaeus also asserts the same thing in his letter. I beseech you, therefore, not to despise the poverty of our little house. For, behold, that little bedchamber contiguous to this room, and which is a decent receptacle, will be for your use. Do not, therefore, unwillingly take up your abode with us, for you will render our house more ample by deigning to dwell in it, and will, besides, procure for yourself no small renown. If, being content with a little house, you emulate the virtues of Theseus, the namesake of your father, who did not disdain the slender and poor cottage of the old woman Hecale. Then, calling his maidservant, he said, Photis, take the baggage of our guest, and faithfully place it in that bedchamber, and at the same time bring quickly from the cellar oil to anoint him, a towel to wipe him, and other things useful for the same purpose, and conduct my guest to the neighbouring baths, for he is weary through a journey sufficiently difficult and long. When I had heard these things, considering with myself the mode of living and the frugality of Milo, and wishing to conciliate myself to him in a still greater degree, I said, I am not at all in want of things of this kind, because I carry them with me in all my peregrinations. And as to the baths, I can easily inquire where they are. Do you, Fotis, take this money and procure for me hay and barley for my horse, who has so well conveyed me hither, for this is my principal concern. When this was done, and my things were brought into that bedchamber, I proceeded towards the baths, but first went to the market, in order to procure something for supper. There I saw a great quantity of fish to be sold, and having asked what was the price of them, and refused to give a hundred pieces of money, at which the fishmonger valued them, I bought them for twenty pence. Immediately on departing from thence, Pythias followed me, who had been a schoolfellow of mine at Athens, who, having at length recognised me, stopped me in a friendly manner, and having embraced and gently kissed me, said, Oh, my Lucius, it is certainly a long time since I have seen you, as we have not met before since we left our master. But what is the cause of this your peregrination? You will know, I said, to-morrow. What, however, is the meaning of this? I rejoice that you have obtained your wish, for I perceive the lictors and the fasces, and that your dress is such as perfectly becomes a magistrate. To this he replied, I am a prefect of the market, and an edile, and if you wish to buy any food, I will take care that you shall have it at a reasonable price. But I signified to him that I could not avail myself of his kindness, because I had already provided myself with a sufficient quantity of fish for supper. But Pythias, beholding my basket and shaking the fishes, in order that they might be more easily seen, said, What did you give for this refuse? I replied, I could scarcely obtain them from the fishmonger for twenty pence, which when he had heard, taking hold of me by the right hand, he brought me back again to the market, and said, From which of these men did you buy this rubbish? I pointed out to him a little old man sitting in a corner, whom immediately rebuking in a most severe tone of voice, in consequence of his authority as an edile. Do you neither spare, said he, our friends, nor any strangers, that you sell trifling fish for so great a price, and thus have reduced this city, which is the flower of all Thessaly, to the form of a desert and an inaccessible rock, through the dearness of provisions? But this conduct shall not remain unpunished, for I will now make you know how worthless men ought to be restrained by an edile. And having thrown my basket to the ground, he ordered one of his attendants to stand on the fishes and trample them under his feet with which severity of discipline my Pythias, 
being satisfied, and having persuaded me to depart, he said, I have sufficiently punished, O Lucius, this old man, by causing him to suffer so great a disgrace. This being done, I betake myself to the baths, astonished and perfectly confounded, perceiving myself to be at one and the same time deprived of my money and my supper through the officiousness of my schoolfellow. Having likewise washed myself, I returned to the house of Milo, and afterwards to my bedchamber. And lo, the maidservant Fotis said, Your host invites you to supper. But I, who already knew the parsimony of Milo, gently excused myself by saying that I thought the fatigue of the journey was not to be removed by food, but by sleep. Milo, however, on receiving this message, came himself to me, took hold of my hand, and kindly endeavoured to lead me to supper. And while I delay and modestly resist, he said, you shall not depart from hence till you follow me. Accompanying him likewise what he said with an oath he drew me, who unwillingly complied with his pertinacity to his bed. And when I was seated, he said, How is our friend Demaeus? Are his affairs prosperous? Tell me likewise all that you know respecting his wife, children, and servants. He also more accurately inquired of me the causes of my journey, which after I had carefully narrated, he then asked me most particularly concerning my country and the leading men in it, and in the last place he inquired about the prefect of it. But perceiving that I was weary from the molestation of so rough a journey, and also from the length of my narration, that my words were cut short in the midst through sleep, and that lassitude occasioned me to speak indistinctly and to stutter, he at length permitted me to go to rest. I escaped, therefore, from the loquacious and hungry supper of the sordid old man, burdened with sleep and not with dainties, having supped on tales alone and returning to my bedchamber, I delivered myself to the wished-for rest. End of chapter 1, part 2 Recording by Shiromi Arserio Shiromi.net